Hey there, film fans. I am Jeff. I am Dave. And I am John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies both new and old with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to make sure we don't say anything ridiculous or stupid, we are going to make this a drinking game. (laughs) Drinking games. So if we do say something stupid or negative about a film, you will hear this sound. That means we're drinking and we hope you at home are drinking as well. So pour yourselves a glass and give it up for the films we love and perhaps a film that needs some love. Yeah, we're going to find out soon. We are going to get into our really, really, really fun Oscars versus Razzies segment or the best of film, the worst of film segment in a second. But first, let's send it over to John for some shout outs. Mm. All right. The shout outs. As always, we drink beer on this podcast. So we have a beer sponsor. His name is Carlos Barroza. The boys are drinking. And if you want to check out the images right there, he's got a handle on Instagram where he Shares all the information of his brews and his process and keeping us up to date on him becoming a, a beer master. The handle is Cbarosa Bar 2019. That is C-B-A-R-R-O-Z-O-B-A-R-2019. And as always, the music you hear on this episode and every episode is provided by the artist Dasein. If you're digging this music, you can go over to soundcloud.com forward slash Dasein dash artist for all free downloads. All right. Well, let's... To it, people. Let's talk about some movies. So this is week three. three. <laughs> Fuck, why did I forget? This is week three of our, it beer. was the best of film. <laughs> it was the worst of film segment where we pair a Oscar movie with a Razzie movie. Now to give you a little preface, we are not betters or odds makers. We are not championing these films either or. This is based on Las Vegas and, and, and things that are expected to be happening. Also, other caveat is all of these are streamable. Right. And we're doing them in order of the release dates. So these two movies or these, yeah, these two movies were released relatively early compared to the other films in the award categories that we expect will be getting their nominations coming soon. So the Oscar film is The Trial of the Chicago Seven, directed and written by Aaron Sorkin with a ridiculous cast. And then our presumed Razzie film is one of Dave's favorite movie of the year. Seen it twice. Fantasy Island, or shall we call it Bloom, Bloomhouse's plant? What the fuck, man? I, Jason Bloom's Fantasy Island? No, it's, yeah. Blum, it's Bloom, 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 Fantasy Bloom. Island. It's, it's Bloomhouse, and it's based yeah. on the television series from a very long time ago. So that's it. Without further ado, let's get into the... Trial of Chicago 7, mm. uh, which, according to IMDb, came out on Netflix the 16th of September 2020, because I believe they do their dates British. Um, it is the story of seven people. I wish you put quotes around that because it's kind of eight people, but the story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Illinois, which, if I know my history, is the Democratic National Convention that took place right after the uh, presumptive nominee Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, And it led to a lot of protests because a lot of people didn't think that the Democratic Party was opposing the Vietnam War hard enough and therefore opposing Nixon and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the cast, I think it's it's, it's a trial movie, Aaron Sorkin. The cast Mm. is... I'm going to go in order here of IMDb, but it's I don't even know what, what the best way of doing this is other than that. Eddie Redmayne, 
Tony Award winner Alex Sharp, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, yes, from Secession, although you wouldn't recognize him with his hippie beard in this, John Carroll Lynch, who you may know as possibly the Zodiac and also in Fargo, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is fucking awesome in this movie, Mm. Mark Rylance, three-time Tony Award winner, one-time Oscar winner Mark Rylance, widely considered the best actor on the English language, ran Shakespeare's Globe for 20 years. Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ben Shankman, who you may know from Angels in America, Frank Langella, fucking legend of the American stage. And then there's a very, very awesome and important celebrity cameo that comes up later in the movie that we can spoil or not, but I won't right now. So that's Hmm. it. I think that's enough of a setup. Who would like to get started with our conversation? Who wants to take it off? I thought this was, um, I don't want to, Dave, I don't want to pimp you out to be, to anything negative, but we, we made the dig at a, a Sorkin movie last week about the uh, social network. Yeah. I, was I this, famously do, do you have not, an aversion? finished the Wait, social network. Did you hear the social network score in this, by the way? I, I should have written it down, but I swear on my fucking life. I don't know. I actually don't know if Trent Reznor and Atticus uh, Ross did this score, but it was a do-do-do. Yeah, that first I swear on my life, it came like in the second half of the movie. I swear on my life, they fucking ripped it, or they they cheated their way around it or something. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's cool. no, it's fine. Um, what was the question? Yeah, it's not it's not them. A different guy did the music, but it did sound very similar. I think Aaron clearly loves that stuff. So I was just going to ask you: Do you have an aversion to to Sorkin? Is it a little too wordy? Because if you do, I think this movie might be a perfect example of how. I I uh I really enjoyed this movie and I learned a lot, but I was a little less emotionally affected by this movie than I wanted to be, and I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I still liked it, and I'll probably watch it again because I think I need to rewatch it just for the education because I didn't know enough about this this instance, certainly not about this trial, and probably not enough about the Democratic Convention in 1968, which I thought I knew a decent amount about. But um, did you feel like the the style of his writing? did helped the telling of this story or did it get in, get in the way for you? Do you have trouble with Sorkin? Let me, let me put it this way. You know how like you're watching movies at home and you get like a little distracted sometimes. So you'll, you know, check your phone, yeah. you'll get up, make copy, you'll do whatever, you know, I did other things besides watching this movie exactly zero fucking times the entire way through. Hooked. Fuck yeah, dude. Hooked from Same. start to finish. Like they nailed, they nailed the beginning. The editing is so fucking slick at the beginning of this movie. It's yes. just like, and it makes it, it sets the tone for everything. And then they ease down into like more of a, a narrative, but like, it's uh, the only thing I can compare it to is the, um, the scene in Austin Powers where they're making all the subtle dick references and finishing other sentences. That's what I wrote that down. <laughs> the Austin Powers Woody yeah. gag. Yeah. It looks like a Johnson. Get is, that. Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah it's can you, can the, you opening the opening is a little bit for friends? Basically. Yeah. Do you want to go for no, it? No, go for it. You, you, you can do this one. It basically goes from, there's a lot of characters in this movie. <laughs> that that's kind of if there is a trap i i I would not be surprised if sorkin was to give a master class on how to write this screenplay and he said on my thumb wall sitting there in front of me my biggest note was do not get lost in the fact that you have to weave a lot of characters in and out of this narrative it's the same narrative so how do you involve eight nine ten eleven people quickly how do you introduce them quickly jeff has referenced this illusion a lot there's a really good um albie quote that you have to have good exposition in 15 minutes or less or your your audience is gone i've heard aaron say the same thing before in his masterclass videos 
And he crushes this thing in like seven minutes. There's like five, maybe six minutes, maybe it's less than seven minutes, where he introduces every single character, every single major obstacle of each character and intention, which is his big thing. He wants to introduce obstacle and intention as quickly as possible. He does it for every single one of them and then starts the movie where he goes back in time and builds up to those points and goes beyond. So you never, if you were like me and probably like everyone else, and you did not know any of the details of these people's lives, you fucking get it at that point. Yeah, you, what, get, what? you and, get a masterclass in seven minutes of, of these people. Like it's it's everything yeah, yeah. you need to know up until this point. Except, and, um, they, I mean, they kind of go through and show in flashbacks. But I, 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 the only thing that I found wanting was probably a little more of what actually happened at the beginning. But I, I do like the way they did it because, like I said, it was and, it was with I was with the whole time. I thought it created um, some suspense. And just, for wait, me, though. You, just, yeah, just to be, yeah. wait, just to be clear to everybody first, um, there are multiple groups trying to organize protests. So all of these Chicago Seven were not one group. If you haven't seen this film yet, so I wrote down the Black Panthers were not a part of this group, but they threw mm. in a member of the Black Panther Party into this yeah. group as they claim to make them seem less likable, more violent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the Students for the Democratic Society, which is Eddie Redmayne and Alex Sharps, the Youth International Party which were the yippies for anybody who knows their hair musical yip, 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 yeah all the yippies crazy hair fornication and such so they were like the more crazy people that's abby hoffman right he's still kind of a known person and then there's another one which is the guy who was the world war ii holdout he had his own group so there were like three different groups trying to organize and all of them were arrested and tried together for this and the opening sequence is showing all of them try to get permits and try to um, organize basically the same demonstration, but as different organizations. Um, and, this is, and that is part of what John was talking about with the screenplay is how it's confusing because it's not just one trial of one particular ideology or group. They're all sort of a little different, but similar. And exposition should do a few different things. Um, exposition should teach you how to watch the movie. So we're talking about style. So he does that well, which Aaron is always crushed. He has a very specific style and he always lets you know with the way now that he's directing, especially the editing matches the, the, the cadence of the dialogue. So he's going to teach you how to watch it. He's going to give you a little taste of what it felt like to live in 1968, which is there were these multiple parties going on. This was probably a little confusing to people who were alive in 1968. So we wanted to get you in the mode of communication for people who were probably watching this like you know, voyeur, pedestrian, people who were just tuning into the trial and trying to if follow alive what in happened 60s, in the 60s. They don't remember the 60s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I know what you mean. I'm sure a lot of fucking people did. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, he, I think he does a good job with that as well, as well as introducing the core things we've already said, which is liter- just very literally what characters are dealing with, obstacle, and what they're going to be trying to do. So he does all three in a very tight, perfect way. Dave, you're right. It's just it's a masterclass opening to what could be a very convoluted film if somebody with a master writer was not at the helm here trying to make sure everything worked. Yeah, and this is one of those like examples drama. where, yeah, and we're not there. Of course, I'm just speculating here, but this is one of those things where I would bet a lot of money that all of that was on the script. I bet he put all of that on the page so that when they got to the editing room, it was already there because if it didn't read clearly, he was fucked. I don't think he was going to be relying on the filmmaking to try to make it clear which is something I'll probably keep talking about in this conversation, just how crystal clear the differences in the characters and their intentions and obstacles are throughout this movie. Hmm. 
anyway, let's let's keep going. I'll tell, I'll tell you so what, you, right, you right, at the very, loved it. right at the very beginning, though, that, that opening sequence, like just before the opening sequence, the first logo, the Cross Creek production studio logo, I just want to take a couple of seconds. That logo would have cost a fucking fortune. What are they thinking? Like, that, this production house has made this full. Whenever, <laughs> yeah, whenever production houses do that, I'm always like, wow. Yeah, this? Family Guy really takes the piss out of that at one point. Um, Less is more. But yeah, I, I did. I love this. I thought it was uplifting where it needed to be. They they really, the opening of the trial is like beautifully crafted chaos when they finally get to the trial. They make the defendants likable. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is likable as the, as the prosecutor. Frank Langella, who is amazing as the judge, is a complete bastard. And it's a real testament to how good Frank Langella is because I love Frank Langella. Like, I've, I've, God, he is mm-hmm. fucking awesome, yeah. And you, you hate this guy. The, the way you leave this yeah. movie hating the judge and loving Frank Langella, who are the same person, yeah. is fucking incredible. That, that's, that's a masterclass of like that that villain role that's not your typical like good versus evil villain. Like he is just, by the end when it comes up and it says he was voted unqualified by the board of whatever, like you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, he nailed yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he Absolutely. says nobody's ever accused me of being a racist, it's like, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, there's I a couple. Of, there's that, a couple of really good res- like responses. That's just sort of kind of make you go, yeah, yeah. yeah. In this, so, yeah. I, I I saw this this morning. I, I love this movie too. I did. I wrote down this is a, this is the least Sorkin of all the Sorkin movies. And I I don't yeah. know. We can unpack we can unpack the style a little bit, but he still was verbose, but it was textured, right? So if I I, I didn't love the newsroom after a while because it, it really seemed like one beat. Like everybody was speaking at the same volume, at the same speed. This, they were calm or even the shots were a little bit wider maybe so that there wasn't as much cutting. It just seemed tame, even though it was paced perfectly the same way Molly's Game and and, and all of his other movies have been. Um, And he did the one thing in spy movies that I always have the biggest problem with, which to our JFK episode was my only objection with JFK, which is when you hold information from the audience so that you can surprise them at the trial but we would have seen we should have seen that earlier when they're uncovering all of this stuff because mm-hmm. this movie goes into the trial right away right which he which he also did with um with Sequilla Mockingbird his update for the stage they get to the trial pretty much right away within 5 10 minutes you're you're already pretty much in this trial um the things were unraveling really well in a way that didn't seem like he was holding out for gotcha moments and so that way, when the things came, a lot of them came from Franklin Jella. A lot of them came as obstacles. I mean, that's just good craftsmanship, right? You trust your script enough that you say, all right, for this th- 10 minutes, the audience is going to be headed in this direction. And then one sentence from the judge is going to completely change the mood to go in this direction. And then rather than sit there and like even the cameo that comes in at the end, which sort of becomes the the savior moment, sort of, um, wasn't forced it really felt genuine you know and i i thought that mm. that carried my through the mill. I, I thought it was great that was a, that was a good camera not flashy not flashy yeah not showy there's no, no there's nothing was flashy drama, it was but... never a bit where it wasn't why, grounded right yeah that's why the, the comment i made at the beginning i don't want that to sound like a, a negative thing it was it was actually refreshing that what i said about i didn't know if i was super connected to individual characters but i meant that as a compliment because when you're dealing with ensemble pieces, especially in the courtroom style of drama, if you try to put the square through the round peg with trying to force one person's point of view, sometimes you're going to lose a lot of material. So again, I feel like he was like, how do I get this whole thing across? Especially because 
as a person who was alive then, trying to experience this trial and see where you stood on the hands of justice, which what do you agree with it or not agree with what they did? Individual groups or the entire trial, the entire ruling, whatever. I felt like this was very refreshing that one stylistically, and I, I love Aaron Sorkin, but he did not push his dialogue style into this as much. So I feel like it made a lot of room for a different uh, range of pacing and styles of dialogue. Like the characters didn't sound like they were speaking Aaron Sorkin dialogue all the time, which again, I don't, I don't yeah. mind, but it sounded like individual characters, which was refreshing. And in doing that, because he's already such a master storyteller and can juggle so many hats, he's done so many good shows with so many huge ensemble casts. Because he wasn't trying to make everyone sound like Aaron Sorkin at all, there was room for everyone. So I wasn't sitting there waiting to start caring more about one person than the other, which I found very refreshing. I learned a lot more because of that. I still cared about these people, but I wasn't like, who's got the biggest obstacle that I'm waiting to see this entire you know, trial through? So I, I do want to bring this up to you, you guys. This is the biggest elephant in the room for me. And Aaron Sorkin is way too intelligent not to have known about this. Now, again, he made this movie before 2020. So he didn't know what was going to happen in the year 2020 with all the, the riots and everything, and certainly not the insurrection we saw a couple weeks ago. But he did see the three years leading up to this. He did see 15, 16, 17, and 18. He did see what everything was building to. And he chose to make this movie, which I find very, very interesting. Anti-Trump. He's very anti-Trump. So let's, well, it is, but he you is. need a little he, bit of he emotion. Is. He, he is. is. He is. Yeah. yeah. You need some emotional intelligence. And I think a good conversation is required after a movie like this. Because if you go into this and just see it as is, you might walk away thinking, see, the liberals did it in the 60s. So why can't we do it now if you're a conservative and you, and you feel that way about it? I think he is trying to, responsible audiences, trying to approach the nuance and the differences based on the principles, the values that these movements had based on the ones that exist right now and trying to show you the difference between why was there some kind of self-evident righteousness in demanding some other kind of uh, outcome a lot of these protests were based on the war, right? Everything was coming out of, and, and I thought he did a really good job of having the, the different groups that are being tried fighting over these principles and fighting over what their, out, their end game is. The, yeah. what, I think my favorite scene is that final, they have two really big showdowns where Abby and Redman's character really go after each other. And the second one, is when Abby finally says, I don't think you and I have the same idea of what an outcome of revolution should be. And I, I thought that was so mature because it starts asking questions. It's not just showing you like, this is what revolution looks like. It's not a hippie protest movie. It's much more, it's much more textured than that. And I, I don't know, I want you guys to get in here because I felt like, were you thinking about this the whole time? I felt like the way he handled the, the communication between the groups was where the education actually lied, not in what the trial was going to be. It was the way they spoke to each other about the goals that they all had, but were trying to get to very differently. Did that? What did you guys think about that? Dave's looking at me. Jeff, yeah, I'm looking at Jeff. Jeff, you go Dave, first. you got a buzz us ball for being Um... Well, I didn't think about that specifically that way, but I'm happy that you brought it up. I mean, obviously the parallels are are uncanny. Uh, we should be very clear that the protests of 1968 are are 
are very fundamentally different than police brutality. Even though there is crossover, there there's racism. It, it was not really well, except for the the Black Panther Party. So that that drew it in. But generally speaking, I'm not going to pretend like, oh yeah, all protests are the same like that. But, but in 1968, there's going to be parallels. Yeah, the, these the the whole the whole premise of the 1968 protest was that they were trying to some peacefully, some not so peacefully, make a demonstration against nominating Humphrey because he was going to be pro-war. He yeah. was going to, right? That's how they interpreted it because Bobby was killed recently and they all thought this was fucking horseshit. They're throwing it down the chute. That was some kind of conspiracy. There was conspiracy involved. Like we have to at least acknowledge that there are similarities. They went there with a very similar mm. intent of we are trying to disrupt a democratic process. Now, again, they, they thought of it differently. Eddie Redmayne's character was thinking, I want to do it peacefully. And then, of course, there's a nice turn in the movie. And Abby, the hippie's character, was like, fuck it. We're going to do whatever is necessary, even if that means getting into a fight with the police. So on the surface, I, I do think there is, it's not hypocrisy. The, the, the whole reason he made this movie is because he's trying to show you there is a difference between what happened two weeks ago and what they were trying to do in 68, and it's based on values and principles. Yeah, I mean, there's a, right. there's a, there's a massive difference. Like, because I, I first encountered this uh, the situation in 68, I was reading, uh, of all things, a George R. R. Martin anthology. Um, he, does a, yeah. he does a book series, Wild Cards, um, where it's people with superpowers, uh, but he puts, the, he puts them in actual historical context, and one of the books deals with the, the 68 Democratic Convention <laughs> from the context of these characters. So that was, that was my intro to that. And I, I feel like the whole protest was like the whole fight that they were having was to be allowed to protest right. in front of the building, not not to come in and smash up the building. So there's a very different difference between right. like what happened last week and what yes. these guys' intentions right. were. Like the, if you if you can't see that, you've missed. You've really like go back and watch it well, again. You were on your phone, so yeah. But this we live in a place where not everybody could see that. You know, we we have a villain here in the country today called Antifa, which nobody's ever been arrested for because it does, it's not real, <laughs> and, and somehow it has become one of the great antagonizers. Nobody had heard about it a year ago, and now all of a sudden it's everybody's biggest fear. It's not even real. Nobody's been arrested for it. But seven more people were arrested in this fucking movie than there were in, in the history of this so-called movement and organization. Um, and so there, there are a lot of parallels like that. The press matters more in this movie, which they talk about a little bit. I, I guess I could have used a little more, but headlines, you know, that's it. That's how people got their news. So, um, and that was, an, back to John's point, I think it is really cool that all of these groups were different. So that, again, it wasn't just one ideology um, specifically because it's, it's, it's a, they're trying to find common ground. Also, they are so-called Democrats who are protesting the Democratic National Convention. So it's very different from a lot of other things. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, I, I, I think I a lot of the education, a lot of the education did come from that. And, and to your point, John, where you're like, oh, I wasn't really emotionally involved every yeah. time the Black Panther stuff, I thought that was handled really well, uh, by, oh by Aaron Sorkin, who obviously is, is, is a white man of privilege, et cetera. Um, but there's a, there's a Black Panther in here who doesn't have a lawyer and he even cites an actual law that says basically you can't try somebody that doesn't have a lawyer because his lawyer was hospitalized. His lawyer was ill. It's not like he didn't have a lawyer. And at the time, he couldn't represent himself. And so here he is thrown into a trial, which he had nothing to do with. I, I mean, that made me fucking furious that whole, yeah, that whole yeah. time. And I, I thought it was handled really, really well by the, the filmmakers. It was. But and especially the actor. One, Jesus. one point I did have, like when he finally boiled over and basically told the judge to fuck himself. And yeah. it was so long overdue. And it was like one of those yes moments, but he made sure that that victory was very, very short-lived. Like you got the victory, but there was a really bad fucking cost for it. 
Yeah. Yes. And I, and the, the J the Joseph Gordon Levitt reaction to that was really, really, really good. Yeah. Uh, and even, I mean, I love Mark Ryland so, so much. <laughs> and so, 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 so the, yeah, I, I, I'm getting convoluted here, but there's just, there was a lot of good shit about this. I mean, but yes, I, you're right. Josh, also, I did so learn a lot of the ideology. Let's bring it in the context of what we're discussing, where it's going to possibly come up with some Oscar nods. It's really hard yeah. to narrow down like a nomination. Like you got Franklin Jella, Yaya, Mark Rylance, directing, writing, editing, even cinematography. Like I'm starting to really like this. This was shot on the Alexa LF large format camera again. Um, I'm starting to really like the look of that thing, and I really would like mm-hmm. to get my hands on it at one point. Well, um, mm-hmm. yeah. but this was meant for a theatrical release. Yeah, this, not gonna not gonna not buy this one. It's uh, that's one hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars, but. Still, <laughs> I'll, rent, I'll rent it for a shoot um, one day. Anyone who's following, the, go for it. I was going to ask Dave about the, were you guys just about the filming a little bit? Because Sorkin loves a close-up and he loves cutting and he loves, like, that. he uses that in his editing in West Wing and Molly's Game and, and, mm. and even in um, a Social Network, which one of the reasons Social Network is good, Dave, is because it's him and Fincher working together. So there's a little tête-à-tête going on. Um, but what, what did you think? Because I, I said before that it was a little wider. Did you notice that? Like he was he was able to back off and let it play out a little bit more like theater. And I think that helped a lot of scenes and that helped his pacing. What do you guys think about that? I think I think he did that intentionally because mm-hmm. of what we were talking about earlier with the... You're not trying to force a point of view down here. You want to show everyone's point of view and you want to make it complicated for the audience. And I think one easy way to do that is to back off and show it as a proscenium style. Let's see multiple people dealing with each other in a single frame. Even when we're going across the room, again, those two scenes that I love so much, the way he covered the fight scenes, there were always people, the two, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character and Eddie Redmayne's character were standing in, in the corners of this one large room. There were two different rooms, but in each of them, there were long rooms. And there were people seated beside them. So you always had, I loved that effect. I know it seems like such a small blocking thing, but it really does matter. Subliminally, subconsciously, whatever, you have these other members in the room who are acting as audience members. We know that they, some of them that were in the shots with Jesus, them shared that person's point of view and some of them did not. So it automatically mm-hmm. created this, this lovely freedom I had to not judge either character in that scene who was arguing. I got to just watch. Yeah. And I got to hear what I think Aaron Sorkin's favorite thing to do is, let me present two wonderful arguments and let me have you stir over that. I'm not going to try to force one of them down your throat. And I thought it was just so touching. He did that so much. Obviously, he did that a lot in the courtroom where he was showing the wide shots of the tables with all of the defendants, showing a lot of times he went head on and showed the prosecution table and the defendant's table. And he would just show you everybody having to deal with whatever the fuck was coming off the bench from Langella. Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, he definitely made use of this. This large format camera gets more, like, basically you get more width on the lens. There's less, there's less cropping. Um, and it did really, like, when they used it in um, the Fireblots, uh, they, they used they used that mm. specifically in the jungle to open the jungle right up. And it was right. the same case in this where they needed, like, the big, wide courtroom shots where you encompass both sides. And I, I feel like they used the camera beautifully. Like the yeah, yeah, the cinematography too. was something that was a part of it was a part of what was going on, but you never once were distracted by it. So it was beautifully, yeah, exactly. beautifully shot. Yeah. yeah, you never thought about it, yeah. and it wasn't Which shoving was so like it wasn't shoving costume and production design down your fucking face. Like yeah. any period piece is always like, oh my god, we're wearing beiges because we're in the sixties. Look at their fucking hair. You can smell the hair. I'm like, gay. I'm, I'm not shitting on this movie. I'm saying something. But wait, is this? 
is this the first time Sorkin's written an, like a, an ensemble piece where he didn't just have that one singular protagonist? I've never really seen Sport Night, but do you think is, is this the first time he had to go with that? I mean, as a movie, but I, I, I would, I feel like, I feel West like Wing. his shows oh, are, are definitely West Wing like is it. definitely an ensemble well, piece. It probably has exactly the same amount of dialogue as a social network. It's just divided amongst eight fucking people. Yeah, the characters were so specific though i feel like he really did he really did let these characters come to life and i I would love to know more when did he get these actors involved because it sounded like yeah i mean it really did sound like they all brought their own thing to it i I could praise a lot of them for how how much of them as jeff said they're also famous so how much of them we got to see in each of their characters which you know i i want as much of that as possible with with film style acting um i don't know we could we could talk about any of the performances i think one that was a very well cast i don't think he just said mark rylance is great let's get him mark rylance has done a million different kinds of things on stage but we have seen him do a consistent kind of less is more a little bit more pulled back a little bit more insular performance than most of his film work and i thought it was so interesting i i don't interesting is kind of a cop-out word but it worked in such a captivating way for this character he wasn't a screaming you know, radical, out-of-bounds defense attorney in terms of his personality. He was on his principles and values, going back to earlier, but the way he communicated with all of the defendants and with the judge, that reserved thing that Mark Rylance brought to it made me fucking lean in every single time. And it didn't feel like it was in my face and annoying the way that some, I think a lot of times, bear with me, radicals, get branded in history is like, they're just so in your face that they annoy some people. It's almost hard to believe that anyone would have found him annoying. And I thought that was just really good casting. Um, yeah. I, was I, there a standout like performance it, for you guys or? I had two. Um, Rylance was one and Jeremy Strong was yeah. the other one. Nice. Who nice, apparently nice. Is, apparently went full method and asked to actually be tear gassed. Jesus. So they refused, but he he asked. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope that I hope that doesn't when whenever you're like, quote unquote, method people doing shit like that, I, I hope that doesn't bastardize like the, the art of the method actor. That's yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah, I hope he was responsible. But what do you think <laughs> of uh, Sasha, Jeff? Sasha's. Oh, my God, he's amazing. Yeah, I, I had amazing. one little thing. One little thing from uh, a female. Somebody said, I love the cast. The cast is so great. If this was women, they would never get away with casting them old. They would definitely cast them younger. Because Abby Hoffman was supposed to be like 24 or something in this. And, and Sasha Baron Cohen is playing down his age a little bit, but but he's older. But let me put that off to the side, though. This, totally obviously, there's true. a lot of guys, totally there's, there's a lot of a guys in this film. Um, hmm. So we'll let in the, the female perspective on that. Yeah, he was fucking awesome. He, there's no question. You can't see this movie and think he wasn't tender, but also boisterous. You still see the personality. You still see the bravado. But yeah, for sure. My standout style, I mean, Mark Rylance is one of my favorite actors on the planet seen him on stage a couple times no question um but frank and then yeah. um and then uh, yeah. yaya i mean emmy winner for the watchman um who yes. played uh seal right seal who's the mm-hmm. who was the member of the black panther party that was only in the state of chicago <laughs> or sorry this the city of chicago for four hours yeah My beer also is issues. i do want to make Your this beer? last point the uh the thing at the beginning i was saying about the the similarities, if, if you want to look at it from an irresponsible way, the nuance to find the responsible way to look at this. They never went away from the law, which is the biggest difference. The thing that was driving me nuts this past year with all of these protests and the, the it was a hoax, all this fucking bullshit was that none of it 
was using the law to actually prove anything. They were pulling at fringes. Every single court, you know, throughout these, you know, these cases against the states for trying to say there was voter tampering. These these people were trying to use the law in their favor the entire time. And the times where we got the most upset, which I believe is, I did a little reading. I think it is based on truth, the stuff that happened to the member of the Black Panther Party and whenever people oh, were Oh, it was so contempt, much worse, apparently. Apparently so much worse, yeah. but it was still factual. So yes. the things that we got the most upset about was when the judge manipulated the law. That's mm. what pissed us off. That's why they had a, a, a platform to stand on to have the protest in the first place was that those principles were being manipulated from the top legally. They thought that was fucked up. And then we got to see it play out in a very tangible way with multiple orders of contempt in the courtroom yeah. and a very a ridiculous handling of the entire trial. I mean, when he when um, he was taken out and bound and brought back in, gagged and everything, I mean, um, apparently, yeah, no, I mean, that was fucking horrid. But apparently in real life, like for the purpose of this movie, they cut it way short. He was like that a lot longer in the actual the, the actual event. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure they let that go. In mm. speaking to that, the last point I wanted to make was the movie gods line up every now and then. And I was really interested in, you know, what was happening in this movie in to the Black Panther story. And in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about a movie by Shaka King starring Daniel Kaluuya called Judas and the Black Messiah, which yes. is about yeah. the, the Black Panthers at this time, specifically starring... Daniel Kaluuya's character as Fred Hampton, who is in this movie and his murder. It's a, it's a famous murder. It's oh, not like shit. anything mm-hmm. away. Yeah. He's the one who got killed. He was the president. That's what Judas and the Black Messiah is about. So I cannot wait. The movie gods have lined up. We got to watch this movie first. We're primed and ready. Now we want to know more about what was happening with the Black Panther story. And we're going to get it in a few weeks when we get to watch that movie. Dude. Which I believe comes out if anyone is interested and they want to get on that ahead of time. I'm pretty sure Judas and the Black Messiah comes out. It's already out. It's on HBO Max. Or excuse me, February 12th. It'll be on yeah. February 12th on HBO Max. So nice. um, that's fucking awesome. We get to learn a lot about that stuff. And anyone who's like me and has been eating up, trying to get some historical context on what's happening to us right now, these are two great movies for it. I definitely recommend watching this one. I learned so much and I'm going to watch it again for sure. All right. Yep. Good talk, guys. I loved it. Yeah, this movie's fun. Oh, yeah, on Netflix right now. Go check it out. And Mr. we Sorkin, are gonna take well we are gonna take a quick break and we will be back to talk about Fantasy Island. Yes, we will. Fans. <laughs> We're back. We're back, baby. Yes, here we go. People, so here we go. We are now going to be discussing our presumed Razzie nominee coming up this year. Um, People said it wasn't a good film. We're going to talk about it. Uh, The reviews, just to to give you some context of what we're talking about, has a Metacritic score of 22. That is an average score of 22 out of 100. Uh, It has a 4.9 on IMDb, and it has 7%. On Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, dear. And somehow, somehow, this movie still, still evaded Nicolas Cage, who passed on the leading role, <laughs> which eventually went to Michael Pena. <laughs> somehow, Nicolas Cage couldn't get on board with this. I think it's because Blumhouse does not give you a lot of upfront money. You have to hope it succeeds, and he's not about that shit when yeah, you're trying to Dave, buy Dave Island. Dave Batista was associated with this at one point, too. 
Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. I actually forget who he was. But I'm assuming the soldier, but or he could have been the lead. I have no idea. He could have been the paint your role. Um, okay, so right. this, um, it's based on the TV show from 60s, 70s. Uh, it, is di- it is directed by, uh, I had the wrong one up, <laughs> Jeff, Wadlow, Jeff Wadlow. Yeah. Uh, nice. Co-written by him and Christopher Roach. Anytime I see more than three screenwriters on a list, I, I, I'm like, okay. Yeah, rewrite City, baby. Super Mario Brothers all over again. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Some notable names. You got Michael Pena, as I said. Maggie Q. Lucy Hale. Mm. From Pretty Little Liars. Uh, Jimmy O. Yang. You may know as Chi Yang from Silicon Valley. He's also in uh, Crazy Rich Asians. (laughs) Portia Doubleday from Mr. Robot. Uh, Ryan Hansen, Michael Rooker. A lot of that guy actors. Like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yep. You know? Um, but that, those are the big names and it is, here's the plot. When the owner and operator of a luxurious Island invites a collection of guests to live out their most elaborate fantasies in relative seclusion, chaos quickly descends. There you go. That's the pitch. Why don't I leave it there? Fantasy Island. Fantasies. Not enough of them are sexual, by the way. There's many that aren't sexual. These fantasies. Uh, which surprised me a little bit, but it's okay. <laughs> I think this movie, Dave, what do you think, dude? I'm going to read, I'm just going to read really quickly to to prompt you. I want to see if you can talk on this. First, let me just clarify for everybody. This movie came out February 14th. So, you know, like a lot of early horror movies in the first and second quarter of the year, they, they pumped this one out. I think a lot of people did not see it in the theater because that was when things were starting to get a little strange and a little scary. And I think a lot of people ended up watching it when it went to to streaming or they rented it because they got it out quickly to be able to rent online. Dave posted, this was one of the reviews. I'm not sure where this was from, Dave. Uh, Despite the presence of usually dependable actors such as Michael Pena and Maggie Q, Fantasy Island is the sort of inept, forgettable disaster that doesn't even induce so it's bad, it's good chuckles. That grim sense of feeling trapped is just as palpable for anyone stuck watching the film. I did not dislike this movie as much as that reviewer. No. I don't, I don't yeah. know about you guys. I think that is harsh and mean. And I think this movie may have been victim of the time it came out because everybody thought the world was ending. Well, it's also, it's not just, was negative. it's not just that it's um, like fantasy Island was a beloved show. Yeah. So, and it was, uh, it was the always, plane, it was, plane. yeah, it was always like there was a lesson learned, or, you know, there was like sometimes, occasionally they got a little bit ominous, but they never went like full horror, which is what Blumhouse is known for. Like, just watch their fucking opening. I'm obsessed with the logos this week. Like, Blumhouse's logo at no point does it make you go, oh, I wonder what kind of film this is. Cause it's like no, fucking, yeah. yeah. I like yeah. their opening. It's, like it's their great. Um, but it, I feel like, a lot of people went in expecting more Fantasy Island or like more of the brand Fantasy Island, not their interpretation of what they got. And I think that was responsible for a lot of people's negative reactions because this really is like it starts off. You're like, oh, okay, they're doing it. And no, they're not doing it. I'll it's, actually it's, come back at something you. Else. I will. I will see you and i'll raise you. I think a lot of people who had never, you know, people in our generation who had never seen that show before went in thinking they wanted a lot more classic, sinister, insidious, the purge, Blumhouse horror, and it was neither. It was yeah. neither Super Fantasy Island, and it was also not gory, tons and tons of violence. It, I mean, it wasn't and, even like, Fantasy Island. It, 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 wasn't it changed its own things. rules three times during the course of the fucking movie. <laughs> it 
Kind of, yeah. I'm going to come yeah, back to I that next. I'm curious who you're knowing. I'm not saying this is great. Jeff, get it. What, what did you think? First, first takeaway, general takeaway. Did you have a good time watching it or were you repulsed? I was not I was repulsed, not, but no. there were problems with the movie. No, I was, I was not repulsed. I it am- just wasn't, it was uh, okay. For this kind of movie, I, I think it's about whether or not it's exciting, right? It's good and bad and that kind of stuff. It isn't really helpful here. So it's like, was there, in, was it exciting, funny? Was it exciting, scary? Was it exciting, invigorating? Was it exciting, like romantic? Uh, and, and nothing about this movie all? was exciting. Mm. No, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, Dave. But but I didn't I didn't hate it. Even Chloe said a couple times. I, I watched it with her. She was like, it's a, it's like a bad Black Mirror episode. <laughs> and I was like, all right, yeah, I guess so. Uh, oh, Chloe, yeah, that's for Chloe. Chloe. Um, that's good. That's pretty good. That is a good, is a good also, analogy, though. She also only referred to the guy who somebody said that's a racist haircut. She only referred to that guy as racist haircut. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. So good. That he had um, some zingers. But, that character, he had some really good zingers. Um, yeah, that was yeah, funny. Yeah. I liked them together a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, wait, I, wait, wait. I, I'm confused. I kind of wish it was campier, the, the two brothers. Yeah, the brothers fine. could I have been comic relief, I guess you know, but it, they, well, they weren't funny. But like you know. Yeah, I mean, there was some great stuff there. Like the like there's, there's subtle things in there. Like the desires are basically the four point, points on a compass. You've got the base desires, the desperate desires, good and evil. Like they they set up a really wide tapestry to work with, and then of course the, like the twist happens and they it all starts to come together. Right. And like all that was done kind of well, but the second. And this is my biggest fucking gripe with this film. And like, I don't get me wrong. The first time I saw this, I was like, yeah, this isn't so bad. On the rewatch, I was like, no, this is really fucking long. Mm. And so. What's this thing coming in? My biggest gripe is. 149. They showed how the island worked. It's like the biggest. Oh, the crystal thing? It's it's like you've, you've given away the mechanics of how the island works. Like there's no mystery also, anymore. There's stupid. no. There's no nothing. Like did they did they learn nothing from Lost? Exactly. That's all I was thinking about too. Which I know kind of sucks for them because everybody's seen Lost and you're, you're thinking about how well they handled the mystery for the you know the first several mm. seasons. If you're a big fan of that show, I thought and my my biggest gripe and I, I I'm literally asking you that this is not rhetorical. I don't understand the ending. What did they resolve? And I'm sorry for the spoiler alerts, but like we, we learned some information about gonna, Michael Pena's yeah. character. I don't understand how what they did by throwing her in the fountain. I, I don't. I, I really don't understand how it wrapped up. The the thing that bothered me the most about this movie was the wrap up, the mm. last fifteen or twenty minutes. I, I really? really don't get what came together. Yeah, there, I, I must have missed something. It didn't make sense to me. I was like, what? What did that not explode the? I, I mean, what, was, what were they trying to do? What was what was supposed to happen? Well, I guess they were breaking their own rules because everybody only gets one fantasy. But it seemed like it was Michael. It was somebody's fantasy at the end that she would go. But they already got a fantasy before, so it was basically a redo of a fantasy. No, no, the, and the Maggie person, Hughes skirted away from it. The person who got the fantasy mm-hmm. hadn't had one yet because she was kidnapped and brought to the island. Oh, yeah. So that was that was the go. that was the actual really good setup. Like that girl was brought to the island and kidnapped. She was Portia. actually someone else's fantasy. Mr. Yeah, robot girl. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. And, you're right. I, and, that's not, that's on yeah. me. I, I forgot that. But the, that's yeah, the whole point of it is like, and that's I mean, that, okay, that's that's my second gripe though, is that by the time they get to, and I'm just going to ruin this whole thing right now. Um, so spoiler <laughs> alerts right now. Fucking spoiler alerts for this film right here, Fantasy Island. Um. 
when they get to the big twist where like they advertise it in the trailers, it's like, this isn't our fantasy. This is someone else's fantasy. And then they reveal whose fantasy it is and why. And I'm just, it just, it's like, so they, the, the line straight after that, where they're talking about, cause she goes off in this tirade, like the, one of the characters revealed as being the girlfriend of a guy that was killed years ago. And they go off, she goes off in this thing about, oh, I, we were going to be together and we that and everything else. And he walks away and he's like, they dated one time? They and I'm like, yeah, they, yeah. They just cheapened the fuck out of the entire mythology they've set up. Yeah. Like you I spent agree. all this time building up all this great ominous stuff and then just threw it away on a token crazy girl. Yeah. And if and the only way that's going to work is if you make the whole thing satirical leading up to that so that we can laugh at the ridiculous of the hour and a half that we just watched getting to that point. But they didn't do that. Yeah. I feel like they were trying to sincerely build that ominous tone. And I, uh, like, like we said, we were talking, I think I was thinking about Lost the whole time. I was like, please don't explain this. Please let me be a little confused or have a guess for what this is at the end of this. But they, hmm. that, I'm not blaming her, but that monologue that she gives where she explains everything, I felt like I, and maybe they wanted to do this, but I felt like I was watching a cheesy 60s television yeah. show. And maybe they were trying to do that. Maybe that was the point for it to not be taken too seriously. But the little bit of intrigue that they had going for me was just eviscerated by, by yeah. when, she, when I mean, she started explaining everything and then they push her into the fountain. I was like, I'm, I, this is just, it's, it's all over for me. Whatever had happened up until this point. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was done I, the second they showed how the island worked. Yeah. I thought that was kind of like, that was kind of that was kind of lame too. Yeah. yeah, it was like no, you don't you don't need to show that that had that no bearing. Like, why would you give away how? Like, this would have been great, I think, if Blumhouse did TV and this was four interconnected episodes of a TV series. Minus, well, and you the, can kind of edit as you go with with that kind of stuff because then you do an episode yeah. or two and then you can basically change your tone or pick your you path correct, for the next yeah. one. You know what I mean? Whereas this one, it's like they're printing it and and. It's, I think it's, it's okay that it's confusing and that some people's fantasies, the characters are tech, they bleed. So I guess you could say they're real, but they're from a different time or maybe an alternate reality or something. And then some people's are just now they kidnap people hmm. and throw them on the island to be a part of your fantasy. I was even okay with that. It just seemed a little random. It seemed a little clever. And it says on IMDb that it was inspired by Cabin in the Woods and Westworld. Now, I don't know where yeah. that came from, but I, I could have used more of the the camp, or at least the self-awareness that Cabin of the Woods had. Not necessarily like, I know what you did last summer, like camp, but the awareness that it's horror, but we're laughing at it. It's horror, we're laughing at it. Or hmm. Westworld, which would just go full-blown, like, this is a smart movie. But nothing on this page made this a smart movie. Um, and so they should have, I guess they could, they should have gone camp or something. They should They should have given us something. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I there agree. is a there are some little gems hidden in there in amongst it. Like, there's a couple of great scenes where they yeah. subvert your expectations. Uh, when they're sitting by the pool and they call the the model over, and she sits down and then proceeds to analyze their life, and like gives them <laughs> gives them like she's she's telling them like shouldn't you be like maybe you should move out, and right. and stuff like that. And it's it's totally the opposite of what you would normally expect a writer to do with their character because they usually make the model the dumb one. And because uh, writers are unimaginative, but uh, then, then there's like this it's- scene. <laughs> <laughs> get, get out of here! Writers are heroes. Get out of here! Not not when they write women like that. Um, oh god! And the scene where you're shown the repercussions of sending the video, like you you're in the the revenge thing, and you're indulging in the little bit of the revenge fantasy that she has, 
and then she sends the video and it's all funny, but then it cuts to the guy receiving the video. And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's uncomfortable. I don't I don't like that anymore. And like that's exactly the reaction you're supposed to have. But like there's there's little bits of clever writing in there. And I'm pretty sure yeah. that was one of the three writers listed that contributed. <laughs> I like or that one the best. Lucy Hale and Porsche. That, that was my favorite one, I think. It also sounded to me like this is just a perfect example of how important, and this is completely up to directors and editors, they establish tone. Like you're still, hopefully you're going to be directing actors and they're going to be on board with you and you know they're, they're going to get in stylistically, they're going to be there. But the tone of this was just so confusing to me that basically what Jeff said is, is totally correct. I was prepared to have slightly different tones for each of the fantasies and stuff, but when it came together, I'm not sure... This is the least this is the least critical I could be. I'm not sure what tone was supposed to be established once they all realized they were in someone else's fantasy. I don't know if it was detective mystery, we figured it out. I don't know if it was still supposed to be horror. I don't know if everything was thrown out the window and we were just supposed to be confused. Um that got me and because of that, I think that final you know scene where they all finally learn everything and yeah. we learn everything, which is a big boo-boo in a horror movie. You should mm. never give away the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure if any of those actors were in the same movie in that scene. And that scene lasted quite a long time. And I'm not blaming the actors. I'm just <laughs> yeah. not sure what I was mean, happening yeah. on stage there. If you want, if I mean, if you throw, uh, confused throw it back to like one of the best horror movies ever made, Neon Maniacs, you, no one has any idea why any of that's fucking happening. And it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Neon Maniacs, yeah. Jesus it's on YouTube. Christ. It's on also, YouTube, but, find but, it. But the thing, the thing that Dave said, though, about how, you know, there are good pieces leading up to it. I was sitting there consciously thinking that. I was like, so far, not so bad. You know, I was enjoying some moments. I was laughing some. I was cringing a little bit. I was like, okay, I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a drama, so I'm not super emotionally invested, but I'm caring a little bit more about Maggie Q's character than I am about the others emotionally. I feel like I was totally in line with what they were wanting me to feel. And then the way so many bad mystery horror writers in any medium, really, they got to that ending and they decided to try to to justify things that created the most fun, which was the mystery of what was happening technically with the island, which is yeah. obviously that's the biggest one. But also, if you're going to try to handle whose fantasy this is, there is a way to do that by using the language of cinema to show us and not literally tell us in a giant page long monologue. And I feel like it just got lazy. I feel like they were having a lot more fun up until that point, like filmmaking wise. Everybody involved seemed to be having a really good time until that scene. And then they were like, I guess we got to explain everything. And then the fun stopped. Yeah, it sucked the life out of it, like at that point. And then it's almost like they got up to, and then there's a really big twist. Fuck, what do we do now? (laughs) And it just like, like and again, like the big premise is that they're playing out someone else's fantasy. As it turns out, but when they you know, when they finally get to that reveal, it's just so pathetic and cheap. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah. yeah, it's never good when the aha. I've seen this on stage a lot. When when that aha moment happens, and you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're obviously that when they wrote it, or even when they started making it, they were hoping you would go oh, or something like have yeah. you hooked in some way. But if you're sitting there and you're like. Uh, <laughs> but it's also I mean, the thing is I'm that, glad that, you said that, that on stage it does cause... hinge on that because like the first time I watched it I was like oh okay and then the second time I watched it I was like there's nothing here for me <laughs> there is nothing else but propping this the, movie up except uh, for that twist 
I love a twist. You know, like when a twist is pulled off well, you fucking love it. So again, when I was sitting there frustrated, I was like, why do some twists work and some don't? And I think one symptom of a, of a bad twist in a movie is when it comes down to an explanation. We don't ever really mind it when, you know, villains and superhero movies explain everything because we can, you know, we know it's part of the genre, but whenever, like Dave said, Jesus, I've got a big burp in my chest. Whenever there's a big (laughs) ominous tone and mystery that's built up, when Bruce Willis was dead at the end of Sixth Sense, I jizzed in my pants, right? At the end of that movie, you show it, right? They didn't say anything. That's a a Lonely Island video. (laughs) They didn't say it. Why is that twist so good? There's not a word spoken in that sequence. Hmm. He doesn't say a fucking word, and no one else does. So up until that point, they, he follow, M. Night follows his same rules. He shows you certain angles, literally in the filmmaking, and bits of information that Bruce has, so that by the time you get there, he doesn't have to explain shit with dialogue. This movie literally got to their explanation, and they were like, well, we haven't done a good enough job leading up to this so we're going to have to just explain it with dialogue. We're going to break yeah. the rules of cinema, and we're going to break the rules of the island. I'm surprised and you didn't pull just, out a fucking Back to the Future apart. whiteboard, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I, got, I got a little worked up. I didn't hate this movie. I, I hate is not even the right movie. I, I don't think it deserves that IMDb score. I don't know if I think it deserves that Metacritic score. I, I, I don't know. I can, t- I, can t- I can tell you 4. now. 9, on the, that's probably pretty close. On the rewatch, I have to disagree. It does. <laughs> it deserves it. Okay, okay, okay. I, Maybe yeah, if I, I watch mean, it twice. 7% on Rotten Tomatoes is low, but as my brother hates Rotten Tomatoes because it's it's like, come on, you know, it's it's good or bad. It's nobody's gonna nobody should give this a good right. review. I have but two, it's not a seven. I have okay, I have two <laughs> points here. Okay. So when when they're in the revenge fantasy and Doctor whatever is now Doctor what's the name of the doctor that she had, the therapist she has? Dr. Torture. Dr. Torture. Yeah, he's he's got the he's got her there and <laughs> come, she she fires up she like <laughs> fires the little electricity thing and zaps him and then she dumps a bucket of water and she fires it again and zaps and electrocutes him and she's the other girl's fine that he's touching. That's not how electricity works. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, not to be that guy, but I know what you mean, dude. If we're going to have a so it was in realism. Yeah, so like there's 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 bending the rules and then there's just taking uh, like altering fucking physics I mean, and expecting people to come with you. That's that. No. Also, she's really good at memorizing what those buttons do. I never know what anything does. I don't, I don't even know how to type. And she's like, I, oh, it, it, that's an inside joke. If you've seen the movie, I guess. I hit the wrong buttons on this Dude. show all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but not yeah, loose, the other one, the other one, the other question I have to ask you though, uh, while I open this beer, because I just went through one. Do you think that Michael Rooker, knew how bad his dialogue was and just did his best? Because uh, some of that dialogue... I, I, I would go, say he thought it was clever. That's what I would say. Like the, yeah, the way, no, yeah that's what I would guess. I don't know. It's, it's just like some of that dialogue is just cliched and trite. I think... And I've seen him do way better with way less. bothered me... I think I know what you mean, but I feel like there's a more big picture issue with his character in that I didn't understand anything about him. So like it didn't really matter what was coming out of his mouth. I felt like they again once again they were like they didn't do a good enough job of showing me where he was coming from and why he was going to be such an important role 
that he had to say everything. Hmm. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, the dialogue actually coming out of his mouth felt pushed and trite and stuff, but I think it was more because they felt like they had to say it as opposed to showing us why he was important. But also the rules that he set up was this island gives you a fantasy and then it turns evil, except for the one person whose fantasy is evil. Hers was just fine. Hmm. Right. Right. Huh. There, yeah, there's a lot of holes, dude. You're totally right. Yeah, I know. It frustrated me. It was, it was, it. Whenever you're gonna deal with like a puzzle movie, you know, you gotta, you gotta make everything fit. Even with the show we've mentioned, mm. Lost. Even with the show like Lost, where I think a lot of people were like, "Well, they didn't answer every question. They did a good enough job, in my opinion, tonally, to, to reinforce the fact that questions can't be answered on this island. That's kind of the point. This was not right. that." This was not that. So they didn't play by their own rules, yeah. which was frustrating. And that's, they kept that's the them. biggest trap to fall into is for writing. Like if you set up the rules of your world and then break those rules, it's like my, that's my beef with Superman Returns. They, they set up their rules and then they broke their rules for a, for a big, you know, yeah. climactic ending. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they're going to um, make another one of these? Because this definitely has a wink tattoo is here and now we're going to. I feel like that was a throwaway. Now we've got I, the whole fantasy. Island. I feel like that was a throwaway for the fans of the original show, which doesn't make sense because the fans of the original show would have fucking hated this. They probably wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think is there a way we've kind of been bashing this? Is there a way to redeem this? Like, did did they do anything really well that we want to talk about? Or um, the first half of the movie. Did they shut great. the plane down really well? Yeah, the first the first time the movie is great. Um, this was a mixed format one, by the way, uh, from a shooting perspective. Uh, you might recognize the name here. They shot it on the Alexa Mini. So ev- yeah. fucking everything is shooting on Alexa these days. Um, and they yeah. shot on the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 4K. As hey, well. we've used that. A lot of the action scenes are, uh, were shot on Blackmagic Pocket Cinema because you can get like right in there. And it doesn't matter if you wrecked that one because huh. it's only like three and a half thousand dollars or four thousand dollars or whatever so <laughs> yeah 128 yes well actually the the alexa mini is only 45 yeah <laughs> i uh yeah i had fun that's that's as much as i'll say i had fun for the first hour 20 i wasn't judging it too hard even yeah. when they broke the rules so if you don't mind having kind of a a not super cathartic well-rounded you know, tie up, then I think you'll still have fun yeah. watching this movie. I'm not going to say never watch it, but it's on stars. Yeah. The stars. stars. Um, bear in mind, the stars transfer is terrible too. At first I thought like they either fucked up the cinematography or the color. Then I looked up the cinematographer and he's got a list of credits like longer than I am tall. Uh, and I was like, no, it's not him. He did fine. Um, and the colorist has all these huh. articles. I'm pretty sure it was just the, the stars transfer that like made things, overexposed here and there. I'm not a fan of what stars, on, stars does to their, their movies. Yeah, pick pick your act up, stars. They also yeah. introduced the stars logo at the worst times in movies. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it always flashes up the stars, like, right at the climactic moment oh, yeah. at the end, and then and stars. Is that, like a, <laughs> is, that, is that like a leftover algorithm? Because no, like, nobody else puts their logo on shit. Uh, it's, it's weird. Is that for, like, when it's on anyway. TV? And then when you don't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All right, people. Fantastic, fantastic first movie that we talked about today. <laughs> what do we do, what do we do next week? Next week's good. Next, yeah. Next week is next week uh, is good. This is week Mank? four. Yeah. of the twenty twenties. Yeah. Oh man, twenty twenties best of film, worst of film. Yeah, we're doing David Fincher's Mank, 
which is based on the writer of Citizen Kane. It is the guy who wrote Citizen Kane, the screenwriter, Herman Mankiewicz. That is the good movie, and that's the best of film, quote. And the, quote, worst of film is Capone, starring Tom Hardy. Fuck. And, uh, yeah, boy. Mank is on Netflix. <laughs> Mank is on Netflix, and Capone is on Amazon Prime, Prime Video. Uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. All right, Philip fans. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode, and we will see you next week. Yeah. Bye-bye.